Turn, if you would, to the ninth chapter of the book of Matthew. We are continuing our study through the book of Matthew. I hope to finish this year, but we'll see. We did chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It ended with the crowd saying, He speaks as one who has authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees. And chapters 9 and 10, no, 8 and 9 of Matthew deal with a series of miracles that Jesus works to demonstrate his authority. He's healed people, he's cast out demons, he's told the storm to stop, and it stopped. And we ended last week partway through chapter 9 where we had Jesus coming to Matthew, who was a tax collector, and saying, come and follow me. And what was bizarre or phenomenal about this is that Matthew was a tax collector working with the Romans and would have been hated by his own people. And yet Jesus comes to him. And so Matthew immediately invites all of his friends over for dinner to meet Jesus. And that's where we actually left off because we had the dinner... And outside, the Pharisees are going, what's happening here? Why is this good Jewish rabbi, uh why is this good Jewish rabbi eating dinner with all these sinners? No decent rabbi should do such a thing. And Jesus responded at the very end of it. He said, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick But those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not here to call the righteous but sinners. And we read that last week, but we didn't have time for any discussion over it. Jesus is stating he's coming to those who are sick. Now, the first obvious question, who are those that are sick? And the answer is everybody is. It's just that there is a portion of the population who doesn't recognize that they're sick. The scribes and the Pharisees think they have it all together. I am following the law. Chink, 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 chink. I am doing this. I am better than everybody else around me. I am on the inside. I have got what it takes to get to heaven. I am well. And Jesus says, I'm not coming for you the self-righteous. I'm not coming for those who think they can do it on their own. I'm coming for the masses who understand that they are not right before God and they need salvation. That's who I've come to rescue. And he says, think about what it means. I don't want your sacrifices. I want you to do mercy. I want you to do good deeds. This is actually a quote from Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. Hosea is sitting there blasting them, and he says, Stop with these silly sacrifices. Which is interesting when you think about the fact God was the one who told them to do the sacrifices. Go back all the well, go back to the Garden of Eden. We have blood sacrifices. 
When we get to the book of Leviticus, we have all the sacrifices laid out in bloody detail. God says, when this occurred, do this sacrifice. When this happens, do this sacrifice. One day a year, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, offers the sacrifice for himself, offers the sacrifice for the people. The sacrificial system was set up under the instructions of God so that the people could be right with God. And he gets to Hosea and he says, stop that foolishness. Why? Because they were going through the sacrificial system purely as an external activity with no change of heart. If I slit the throat of this goat on this day at this time, I will be right with God. And then I can go live like the devil and do what I want. And Jesus says, no. Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and saying, you think you're right with God because you don't associate with all these sinners, these tax collectors. You don't understand that what God wants is mercy. He wants you to demonstrate mercy to these people. And you're not doing it. You are separating yourself away so that you won't be infected by the sin of these people. And you know nothing about mercy and love and those things that are very important. All that keeping of the law, which, by the way, they were supposed to do the sacrifices, but it was supposed to be a sign of a condition of their heart, not just an external activity. Now, we would never do that, would we? We would never take Christianity and convert it into just a list of activities that if I do this list of activities, I'm in. And then, guess what? I can look at those other people and stick my finger in their face and go, ha, I'm better than you are. We wouldn't do that, would we? I mentioned last week when we talked about Matthew calling all of his friends. Statistically, I read this somewhere, statistically, within two years of someone's conversion, they have no non-Christian friends. Okay, they start meeting with their friends from church, which is great and wonderful. They look at, they gather people who are like them, which is wonderful. And they lose touch of all those people who need to hear the gospel message. They need to hear it and they need to see it lived out in everyday life. I'm going to give you a little hint. We're going to get to the end of chapter 9, hopefully today. We may have to run real fast to get there. But at the end of chapter 9, Jesus looks at the crowd. He looks at the multitude of people. And he says, they're lost. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're Harvest is plentiful, but where are the people to reap the harvest? Where are the workers? So here we have Jesus' ministry to seek those that are sick. And we get to the end of the chapter and we're going to see he needs workers to help him do that. More on that in just a moment. So that finishes last week's lesson. Verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast? First off, 
These are not the Pharisees asking the questions. These are the disciples of John. And if you remember, John's been thrown into prison. His disciples are kind of, what do we do? Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. If you remember, several, several weeks ago, we actually had a lesson about fasting. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about not doing your acts of righteousness just as a show. Remember, when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. When you pray, go hide in your closet so nobody knows what you're up to. When you fast, and it does say when you fast, not if you should decide to. It says when you fast... Don't let anybody know that you're doing it. You see, the Pharisees, they would fast a couple of times a week. They'd mess up their hair if they had any, put some white powder on their face so they really look sick, so that you know that they're, very, they're, they're being very righteous. They are really suffering for the kingdom of God. But rather, put on your good clothes, put on your smile, and not let anybody know what you're doing. And at the time, we had a discussion about why we fast. Why do we even bother doing that? I made the comment that I had a, um, an atheist friend. He was a co-worker, and we had lots and lots of interesting conversations. And we read a C.S. Lewis book, and in there it talked about denying yourself. And that made no sense at all to him. Why would you deny yourself anything as long as it was legal and, you know, consenting adults and all that other stuff that we throw in there. Why would you do that? The reality is we are spiritual beings in a physical body. And under normal circumstances, i.e. life, our physical bodies become the center of who we are. We live to eat. We live to, you know, take care of our bodies. We want pleasure, not pain, and our bodies begin to direct our lives. And what fasting does is say, no, I'm not going to let the physical control me. I'm going to take the spiritual and I'm going to put it in the leadership position. So we discipline our bodies by fasting. We can fast from food. We can fast from a variety of different pleasures. These are not things that are bad. You don't fast from sin. You run away from sin. Okay? You have nothing to do with it. You fast from something that is, in fact, normally okay, but for a period of time you say, no, I'm not going to do it. And that's the purpose of fasting. Now, the disciples come, the disciples of John come, and say, okay, the Pharisees fast all the time. And everybody knows it. Bad thing. But John's disciples fast. We do that because we're, just, we're, we're good, you know, spiritual people. Yet your disciples are not fasting to Jesus. Why? And he gives them a picture of what is happening. He said, you're at the wedding feast. 
you're at the feast and somebody says, here's a magnificent dinner. And you look at him and go, nope, I'm fasting today. That would be rude. That would be improper to fast when you are supposed to be feasting. The presence of Jesus here on earth at this point in time is the feast with the groom present. So, we celebrate that Jesus is here. Now, Jesus comments, there's going to come a time when he's going away. And we today look forward to the bride, the church, the groom, Jesus, being reunited and having the feast. But for right now, it's different. Hmm. So, they do not fast here, but they fasted here, and they will fast here. So, should we fast today? Yes. I believe we should. Why? For the same reasons we always have. To show the body that the body is not in control. He gives a couple of pictures of what this looks like. What he's after. You've got a garment, and it's got a hole in it. So you take a piece of brand new cloth, and you patch that hole with that brand new cloth. What's going to happen? Well, you've washed the garment before. And I had a discussion with my wife who knows all about this kind of stuff because I don't. You have a garment that's been washed before and it has shrunk. Duh, no surprise, right? You put a patch on it and the first time you wash it, the patch is going to shrink, but the garment's not. And this is a recipe for disaster. I make new wine. New wine goes through its process of fermentation and it kind of bubbles. I have a new wineskin made out of nice, soft material that will grow, shrink, whatever with the wine. That's okay. But an old wineskin is all dried out. It's not moving at all. It's not growing, shrinking. It's not moving as the wine ferments inside the container. So you put the new wine in there and you're going to have a mess. So what is Jesus saying by these two examples? John came to call the nation of Israel to repentance. Israel, the Messiah's coming, repent and enter the kingdom. Guess what? Jesus is coming, and he will certainly welcome the Jewish community to come to him, but Jesus is bringing something new. Jesus is bringing something that is so radical, you cannot sew it on to the existing legalistic, pharisaical form of Judaism that was being practiced at this time. Because if you do, it's just going to tear it and it's going to look worse than it did before. Jesus is saying, I am bringing something radically different. We can't just patch up the old stuff. 
Why? Because the sacrificial system, which, by the way, they were abusing, the sacrificial system will not work in the long term. Go to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews talks about the sacrificial system was a picture of something that was to come, and that something was Jesus Christ. The priesthood was a picture of something that was to come, and that something was Jesus Christ. Jesus is both the perfect high priest and he is the perfect sacrifice. No longer do you have to come every year and slit the throat of that sacrifice in order to be saved because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, the God-man who was perfect and without sin. He had no need of sacrifices for himself and he offered himself as the sacrifice. It is not a patch to fix Judaism. Judaism was the picture of things to come. We know for a fact, because we read about it in the book of Romans, that God still is working in the nation of Israel. He is. But it's going to be when they acknowledge the Messiah. It isn't, okay, you good Pharisees, I'm going to give you something that will help you in yours, and then I'm going to create something different for this group over here. No. It was new cloth, and it wasn't going to be attached to an old garment. It was new wine, and it was not going to be stuffed into an old bag. It was new, and that's what he's telling them. I've got something so different. So, yes, back there you fast. Over here you fast. But in the middle, I'm here. The groom is here. Let's have a party and let's celebrate. Because there'll come a time when the groom will be removed for a period. And that's what he's telling them is going to happen. Verse 18. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him. In the other Gospels, this ruler is given a name. His name is Jairus. He is probably a ruler of the synagogue. Think about that for a moment. This is the religious leader coming to Jesus. He is a person in a position of authority. He is is a ruler. He is a leader. And what does he do? He comes to Jesus and he bows down before him. Why did he do that? He did it because he was desperate. My daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her and she will live. I don't care where you are on the status chart, the pecking order. When your child is dying or dead, you go to whom you think can fix them. And he comes to Jesus. He had heard the stories. He may have even seen some of the activities. He had heard the stories that Jesus could heal people. And he goes to Jesus and he bows down and says, Please, Lord, come rescue my daughter. She's dead. Huh. Why would he do it? Because he didn't have any place else to go. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. It is interesting. You remember earlier in the last chapter 
the centurion came to Jesus and said, my servant's sick, will you heal him? And Jesus says, sure, I'm going to come along. And the centurion says, no, 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 don't bother. You don't need to come. I understand the idea of authority. All you have to do is speak and it will happen. And Jesus goes, wow, this is great faith. And he spoke and the servant was healed at that exact time. Here, the ruler comes to Jesus and says, come, my daughter's dead. He doesn't say all you have to do is speak, and Jesus doesn't comment one way or the other, because Jesus has a mission on his way to the mission. He has a job to do on his way there. So the providence of God is just lining these things up to accomplish what God had intended to do. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. She had been bleeding for 12 years. Okay? I have no medical knowledge to help me understand how anemic you would be if you just leaked for 12 years. I do know that since she was having a discharge of blood, she was considered unclean and would not have been allowed in the community. A woman in her period would have been stashed away and would not, allowed, uh, would not have been allowed to be out in public. This woman had been doing it for 12 years. She had been stashed away somewhere. But she heard that Jesus was walking by. Now, if you're a woman that is outside the camp, to use the metaphor we used when we talked about the people who had leprosy, when you have a woman who is outside the community, she can't very well just walk up to Jesus and say, hey, here am I, take care of me. So she sneaks up behind him, thinking, all I've got to do is get close enough to him. Why did she do this? Because she was desperate. Let's think about this for just one more moment. Jesus said, I have come to take care of those who are sick, not you, Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were sick. We know that. They just didn't know it. They weren't desperate enough yet. They didn't recognize their sin enough to come to Jesus and say, Lord and Master, I may be the head of the synagogue, but when my daughter is sick, I'm coming to you. He was desperate. This woman who has been leaking blood for 12 years is desperate. And she says, all I've got to do is get close to him and I'll be healed. The Pharisees were sitting over there, thumbing their noses up at the whole group going, eh, I'm better than he is. Look at my degree. I'm better than he is. I take my mint and I tithe it. What does that even mean? You take your little mint plant and you cut off one tithe. I'm really good. But I have no need of a doctor and I have no need of a savior. Question. How much of our society, well, let's make it even closer to home. How many of us truly believe that we can do it on our own? That we truly believe, maybe, since I am, by the way, better than you, right? No. No, no, no. All she wanted to do was sneak up behind him. If only I touch 
his garment I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. I mean, this is interesting when you think about it. Here's a crowd of people. We're not talking, you know, a couple of guys walking down the street. We're talking about a crowd of people. And he's walking along and he turns and looks at you. You. Why? Because he knew. He knew all this stuff. He knew what was going on. He knew what was in her heart. And he says, your faith has made you well. What does he say? Take heart, daughter. This is a very affectionate term. Just as an aside, let's make up a story. A Pharisee is walking down the street, and an unclean woman walks up and touches him. What is his comment going to be? Get away from me, you dirty person! Jesus says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, we need to have a little bit of a discussion, just a little bit, whether her faith really made her well. Let's say, to make up a story, I go out and share the gospel with someone, and they accept the invitation to become a believer. And I come back to you and I say, I shared the gospel and they accept it. Whoo, isn't this wonderful? And you go, whoo, this is wonderful. But you and I both know that I didn't save her. Right? God saved her. The blood of Jesus Christ saved her. I was simply the instrument that God used to accomplish that. Remember that, because we're going to get to the end of the chapter, and he's going to say, I need workers. Why does God need workers? Why doesn't God just pop up on a billboard at this time, you know, a big electronic sign, that would get their attention, and say, here I am, become a believer? He could have. But he he chooses to use us as instruments to share the gospel message. But we're just the instruments. The woman's faith was the instrument that brought her to Christ, and Christ saved her. But he praised her faith, because her faith is what brought her there in the first place. Jesus is going to have lots of discussions about faith. Centurion faith, whoo, this is great. Disciples' faith in the middle of the storm, why is your faith so little? Faith is terribly important. But it's God that saves her. It's God that healed her. Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, there was a crowd of people there. There was a group of people at this time. It was a job. It was being a professional mourner. I'm not making this up. 
You know, somebody dies. I want to make sure that there's a loud enough racket that everybody knows that somebody's died. So I go here, hire the locals, and they come in, and they wail and scream and shout because somebody's dead. They beat on themselves. I mean, all that good stuff frees up the family to do other things. (laughs) He goes into them and he says, leave her alone. She's not dead. Now, let's just remind ourselves. Sometimes we begin to think that we in the 21st century live in a very scientific age. We're very knowledgeable about things. These people 2,000 years ago, they were just stupid. Well, ignorant. We'll call them ignorant, okay? And you know what? Jesus hanging on the cross, they may have thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. They weren't scientists. They didn't know like we know what a dead person is. The Roman soldier who poked him and saw the water coming out knew he was dead. They were professionals at making people dead. These people knew this girl was dead. There wasn't a discussion of, oh, maybe she's in a swoon. No, she was dead. And Jesus comes and says, stop all of this. She's just sleeping. And they laughed at him, which in one sense they should, except for the fact that Jesus knew what was about to happen. He knew that it was just like she had fallen asleep because she was going to come back. And they laughed at him, and when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose, and the report of this went through all that district. Two questions. Do we really understand what he just did? Okay. Have we read this story so many times in our life that we lose sight of the fact that he just raised a girl from the dead? Why did he do it? Because the girl's father asked him to. Why did he do it? Because he was desperate because he loved his daughter. Have we lost sight of the fact that Jesus has the power over life and death? Why do we know that we will be resurrected like Christ was and spend eternity in heaven? Why do we know that? Because Jesus showed up at some girl's house and raised her from the dead on some afternoon and we think it's just normal. Because we've heard the story so long. Of course, the second question is this. Why didn't he raise everybody? Weren't there lots of dead people in Israel at this time? Weren't there lots of fathers who had lost daughters who loved their daughter? Why did he just raise this one? I was asked a question this morning by somebody. I don't remember who. I I get asked lots of odd questions, okay? Primarily from my children, but, you know, the question was asked. Why didn't Jesus, since he can raise somebody from dead, why didn't he just take John's head and John's body and put them back together again? He could have done that, couldn't he? He just demonstrated he could do it. Then why didn't he do it? Because John had done his mission. And John was going on to heaven. He doesn't want to come back. 
He doesn't want to come back and spend time with you. Unless God told him to. And then guess what? He'd be back. Jesus is working his miracles not just because there's sick people and they need to be healed. Although there are sick people and they do need to be healed. Go ahead. Well, that's an interesting. Well, let's, let, let's get to that in just a second. Her observation is the other fathers didn't ask, which is true. They probably didn't have the faith. They didn't have the understanding. They were, I don't know. But that is an interesting observation. Jesus was doing his miracles to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. Okay? Remember last week's lesson? They bring the guy who's paralyzed to Jesus. And what's the first thing Jesus says? Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees just start throwing fits. I mean, who do you think you are to forgive somebody's sin? Do you think you're God? They didn't say that. And Jesus says, which is harder? To say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But so that you will know that I have the power to say your sins are forgiven, I'm going to tell him to get up and walk. Why does he do his miracles so that they will know that he is the Messiah? When they nail him to the cross, when they pull him off the cross, when they bury him in the ground, and when he rises from the dead, they're going to know he's the Messiah. Or, or their sin is going to blind their eyes and they won't see it. But he is the Messiah. Yes? Yeah, he fulfilled all the scripture. That the, I mean, we're going to see that in several chapters when John's disciples once again come to Jesus. And they say, are you the guy we're waiting for? And all he does is he lists off the Old Testament requirements of the Messiah. That's all he says. Check, 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 check. He's the Messiah. The girl arose and the report went through all that district. You can imagine, right? This is Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. His daughter was dead. His daughter is brought back to life. This is big stuff. Big stuff. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Son of David would be the name that you would use to show that he is a descendant of David. He is the Messiah. They are acknowledging who he is. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and, he, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Do you really think I can do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith be it done to you. And their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all the district. I'm blind. I know, I hear that this guy's been healing people. I hear that he's coming down the street and I start yelling. We, have, we actually have lots of stories in the Gospels of blind men being healed by Jesus. I'm not sure you can line them all up. I think it is multiple occurrences. 
So they follow him into whatever building house that he walked into. And they said, we're here. We want to be healed. And he looks at him and says, do you really think I can do this? It's an interesting question. What is it? It's a question of faith. Do you believe? Back to your observation. Not every blind man came running because they were, there are a variety of different reasons. These two came and he said, do you think I can do that? Oh, yeah, you can do it. Yes, Lord. Lord, I acknowledge your power. And he says, then according to your faith, let it be done. All of a sudden you can see. That's quite a shock. Matthew really doesn't get into the discussion that John gets into. John has an example, has one story of Jesus healing somebody. Casual, you know, everyday occurrence, right? Then John spends two or three chapters talking about the fact that what this really is is a picture. It's a picture of the spiritual blindness of people The fact that spiritually we cannot see the truth. And that the physical blindness is not nearly as bad as the spiritual blindness that blinds us from the truth around us. You always remember the story, uh, what was it, Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man goes to, they they both die. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham and the uh, rich man goes to hell. But in hell, he can see Lazarus up there having a good time. And he says, please, just send Lazarus down to wet my tongue. Nope, can't do that. Big chasm, can't get across it. Well, then send Lazarus back to warn my brothers so they don't come to this wicked place. And Abraham says, nope, it wouldn't do any good. Well, of course it would do good. I mean, let's face it. Some well-known dead guy walks into this room. Billy Graham died recently, gets up in the prime of his life, he walks in this door. Would that convert people? And what does Abraham tell the rich man? No, it wouldn't. They have the prophets, they have the law, they have all the teaching, And carry it on today, we have the Gospels, we have the Epistles, we have the Old Testament, we have the New Testament, we have all this. And guess what? People are blind and they do not see it. They don't. What Jesus, what Abraham tells the rich man is if a dead guy walked in to warn your brothers, if they're not going to listen to the prophets, they're not going to listen to Lazarus even if he comes back. Yes? Why is that? Their spiritual blindness. I've got a good story for that. Verse 32. And as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowd marveled, saying, Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. Wow, this is fabulous. This guy 
was demon-possessed. It actually says he was demon-oppressed. I'm not sure I know the difference. He was demon-oppressed, and he couldn't talk. Okay? You probably know some people that you wish were. That's a whole different story. He couldn't talk, and Jesus healed him. And all the people were amazed. Verse 34, here's the answer to your question. But the Pharisees said he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Here was an obvious, miraculous event. On this side of the event, he was not talking. On this side of the event, he was talking. On this side, he was blind. On this side, he was not blind. On this side, he was, she was dead. On this side, he, she was not dead. And the, the Pharisees sit over in the corner and says, Huh, maybe the demons are giving him power to do this. They, we, are going to find any other explanation that it takes to prevent us from having to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, I, the Pharisee, am in deep, deep trouble. Because he's not one of us, and we know it. So what do they say? Well, if you're going to cast out demons, it helps if you have the big demon on your side to help you cast them out. That would work, right? Look at Jesus' life. The things that he did. The things that he says. It is obvious to any unbiased reader or the people that were there it is obvious he's not doing this under the influence of demonic beings. We saw demonic possessed people last week. Remember the two guys living in the tombs? They tried to bind them with chains. They broke the chains. Nobody would want to go to the graveyard because these two lunatics were there chasing everybody off. That's what a demonic person looks like. But the Pharisees were desperate for an answer. I've got to come up with some reason that he's able to... I can't deny that he's doing them. I mean, really? You know, we today can have a long discussion about so-called faith healers in our country. Okay? Don't get me started on it. But... We can have a long discussion. Were they really sick before? Were they really healed after? Were this? I mean, I've told you before, one of my favorite movies is uh, the Steve Martin movie, Leap of Faith, where he plays a faith healer. I like it because I like the black gospel music in it. But anyway, he'll tell you that he's a fake. It's a show. I'm putting it on. People pay their money, they see a good show, they leave inspired, life is good, I've done a good job. At the end of the movie, a kid gets healed, and Steve Martin knows he didn't do it. He knows he didn't do it. The Pharisees know they cannot do 
these miraculous deeds. So the only thing they can do is to defame the person who's doing it. We'll see more about this later when we have a long discussion about a house divided amongst itself. Can't, okay, you know the picture. How can they not see? Because they don't want to see. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What are sheep without a shepherd? Lost, dead, dinner. In the scriptures, you and I collectively are referred to as sheep. That is not necessarily a compliment. (laughs) Sheep are not the brightest animals in the food chain. They just aren't. Somebody has to watch them. Somebody has to watch them or they're going to do stupid things. That's why when we get over in the Psalms and we say what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Why? Because he is the perfect shepherd. That's why we refer to pastors as under-shepherds. Under Christ, they are the shepherds of the flock. That's us. And Jesus looked at the crowd and it says he had compassion on them. I've said in here before, it's interesting that we look at things differently than Jesus does, okay? I'm somewhere and there's a crowd of people. What am I sitting there thinking? I wish they would all go away and get out of my wherever I am. Right? They're just a nuisance to me. People just bother me. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I have compassion on these people. It is interesting. I look at my own life. The opportunities that I had and didn't take. I am not making this story up, okay? Several, several weeks ago, I'm in the half-price bookstore. That's where I spend most of my adult life. <laughs> There's a young lady over there, piercings all over, tattoos all over, reading some book out loud, sort of, kind of mumbling it. And curious me, I walk by to see what she's reading. <laughs> Do you want to know what she's reading? The Gospel of Matthew. And you know what I should have done? But I didn't. Why? Jesus saw the crowd and he was moved to compassion. I still have a little too much Pharisee in me. Look at those piercings. Look at those. I wish her well. But there's a little too much Pharisee. And a little bit too little compassion. Jesus saw the crowds and he was moved to compassion with compassion. Why? Why? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and they were helpless. Wait a minute. Are you just stretching or you have a question? <laughs> What's your question? <laughs> 
I'm in a crowded building. Okay, there's people everywhere. She's not going to molest me. It's just not going to happen. The only thing that prevented it was me. Okay? I understand. You know, be wise and be as serpents and be... I understand all of that. That wasn't the case. That's why I use this example. Yeah. I'm not sure he did, but I had enough of a hint to, uh, yeah. <laughs> I agree with you totally. What is the state of modern men and women apart from God? We sit there and we think, ah, they've got good jobs. They love their kids. They love their spouses. They're doing well. They get divorced sometimes, but Christians get divorced sometimes. They beat their kids sometimes, but Christians beat their kids sometimes. I mean, what's the state of them? They're lost. They are lost. They are harassed and helpless, and they don't even know it. They are sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It is interesting to me. It's almost like you could almost let yourself off the hook. Okay? He doesn't tell you to go out and take care of the harvest, right? What does he tell you to do? He tells you to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send harvesters into the field. So you go into your closet. Remember, don't do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by men. You go in your closet and you pray earnestly to send workers into the field. And guess what's happening? God is preparing your heart to see the crowd as helpless and harassed so that you are prepared to work in the field. No, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I'm not going to let myself off the hook. We have times where we could have, we should have, and we didn't. Why? Because we thought physical harm would come? Maybe. I doubt it, but maybe. Not in this case. We just don't want to. They might make fun of you, but I don't know. The prayer that Jesus has is that we would pray so that we would be prepared, so that we could help Jesus in the field. And guess what? When I share the gospel and somebody says yes, I go, wow, that was wonderful. But all I really know is that God allowed me to be part of a process that he didn't need me. He chose for some ridiculous reason to allow us as fallen 
human beings to be involved in his work to bring everlasting beings into eternity. If only we would look at the crowd with compassion instead of, gosh, all these people are in my way, which is what we do. What is the end of all this? Go home, wherever your closet is, and pray that God will allow you, allow you, not force you, not poke you with a stick until you do it, allow you to be used in the service of his kingdom. And guess what? God will honor that prayer. Let's close in prayer. Dearly Father, thank you. Thank you that you have the power over death, over life, over sin. I pray, Lord, that we, that we would be workers in the field. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.